the Langlois from Vintage Leaf Mem Memories, uh, joined as always this season by Anthony Petrielli from the Maple Leaf Hot Stove, uh, one of the finest, maybe the finest uh, Maple Leaf website around. Um, Anthony, this is uh, episode two, uh, slightly delayed because of some technical issues, which seems to happen a lot with, with our hangouts, but we're here uh, a couple of hours before puck drop uh, in Denver again, uh, against the, uh, I was almost going to say the Rockies. That was the Don Cherry's team 30-some um, years ago. But um, quickly before we introduce our, our guest tonight, uh, I guess the Leafs, Anthony, will either be 500 after the game tonight or a couple of games above 500. Is it an important one for them or do you not have a particular sense that this is this is a, a telltale kind of game for the Maple Leafs after losing on the road the other night. No, I don't. I don't put too much stock into early games. Um, I usually start paying more attention uh, to it after the general benchmark of American Thanksgiving, and uh, I think they're playing a team that's much more desperate than than they'll be tonight. So, kind of the then the thing. then the Leafs will be tonight. Yeah, I mean as just a, a brutal start, and they're oh, no, for sure. Yeah, Colorado struggled after a, 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 an impressive first season under Patrick Waugh a year ago. They struggled off the get-go. But should any team be more desperate than the Leafs? I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, but no, no, I'm not trying to be sarcastic or cynical. No, but it's like the Leafs should be playing with desperation every night. This is a team that has proven nothing, nothing. And and when I hear anybody say, oh well, you know, we they weren't up for the game tonight, we, they weren't ready. What, how is that even possible? Given this, this is not a team that's resting on Stanley Cup laurels or getting to the finals, or they had to play till the end of June. Like, anyway, I won't go on. But I'm just, I I hear what you're saying, but they they better be playing desperate because, you know, otherwise they will they are what we think they are, just a mediocre hockey team. So anyway, we'll introduce. I won't ha I won't make you address that, Anthony. But we'll introduce Gus Katsaros. Gus has been on the program before. He's a fantastic guest. Uh, he's the director of analytics and, and pro scouting for McKean's Hockey. Uh, Gus, thanks for joining us. Welcome. We've got lots to talk about tonight. It's a game night, but we're going to talk about the Leafs well beyond this particular game against the Avalanche. So welcome and thanks for joining us. Pleasure is always mine, Michael. Thank you very much. Well, let me start. I know Anthony's got lots, but let me let me sort of kick it off if I can. Uh, the Leafs so far, the, you, you heard the comment I just made. Uh, Anthony used the term, you know, maybe the Avs will be more desperate you know, then the Leafs will be, um, and I'm no expert, but I don't understand why the Leafs don't play desperate hockey way more often than not. And and and, and what I by that I mean urgency, you know, uh, complete, total, maximum effort. That's what I'm looking for from the Leafs. I don't see it every night. Are you seeing max effort from the Leafs in their first? What have they played? Eleven games this season. Are, have you seen that so far, Gus, from Toronto? Well, if we'd have, then we probably wouldn't see this repeating compete meme that seems to be infiltrating every everything through the airways, print, on the net, Twitter. I'm not on Facebook, but I'm sure that it exists there too. Um, I, I'm not really considered. I'm not considering compete to be uh, the buzzword that it seems to be. I, I, I the honest effort that you're looking for. Uh, that's what I think that you're getting. You're just seeing a lot of sloppiness. Um, I, I could go right back to last year and say, you know what, this is a team that has a passive outlook. So everything kind of starts from a um, make sure nothing happens to our, like, like make sure that we're always in coverage and have good coverage rather than being aggressive and forechecking and, and, and trying to take the game to the team. They're actually just sitting back and receiving, and you hear – you heard Carlisle use that word a lot last year, and I think that they're still doing that. But is that is that that's not what he wants? Then he doesn't want a passive mindset. I assume. I know a lot of people are anti Carlisle. They think his systems, quote unquote, are the problem. Um, I've got sort of a different view. But I mean, surely the no coach really are are is anybody coaching to play passively at this level at this point in in the way the game is played? Don't you have to go for it? I think that you can adjust to be passive in, in, in certain situations, like um, what comes into effect when score effects take over. You, you run up the score, and now you're just trying to run out the clock. That I can see there being a bit of a passive element too, but for some reason you just see it in the least. As soon as they start skating out, they have a little bit of a burst, but a lot of it is really passive. Their first inclination isn't to 
forecheck as heavily as they do, their first inclination is to get back into position to prevent and prevent, compete, um, passiveness, the, all those things are traits of the Toronto Maple Leafs from 2013-14 and they've just been carried over this year. The difference this year is some of the additions to Komarovs and the Winnicks and, and uh, I guess David Booth would have been a type of player like that on a lower roster. Those are the guys that are, are more suited to play that type of passive aggressive game and unfortunately it's just not a very good combination to be a winning team in the NHL you just can't be passive if you're not aggressive you're you're just waiting for teams to come and, and give it to you and that's what you're going to get you're going to get a lot of goals scored on you you're going to spend a lot of time in your own zone um, and, and I think it's the mentality that has to change first before any type of systems or, or personnel Okay, I want Anthony to jump in, but my last, not last, but my, my other quick comment here is then, so are you laying this at all on Carlisle? Is this is this a team mindset? Is, like, is this is this a team that's a, a, not afraid, but but afraid of making mistakes and therefore playing too conservatively, not aggressively enough? Or am I bar, am I am I wrong? I think that there's a little bit of an element of of them being playing somewhat afraid and afraid of making a mistake is one. Uh, but I'll give you another example from, from a coaching perspective. You know, the Leafs have tried three different power plays this year. Three. There's three different setups. Like, how do players understand what they're trying to do and, and implement something that's going to last an entire season when they're going from a 1-3-1 to an umbrella to an overload and then back and then starting the rotation again? I mean, there's got to be a lot of confusion amongst players of what are they doing? Are the tweaks actually helping? And if you are tweaking, what are you tweaking for? A game, a shift, two games, two games plus two shifts? Like I think that there's a there's a disconnect between what coaches want the players to do and how the players execute. And that that disconnect is what I think is the major issue here between um, like we're talking from the on ice product all the way through coaching, all the way through their pre scouts, and and and, and like th this season is going to end up playing very similar to last season where they just don't make the playoffs simply because they just can't find any middle ground. There's too much of a disconnect between execution and vision. Anthony, jump in. You know, what you were saying in terms of the team set out to be passive, I don't think that's the case, but what I do believe happens is teams have deficiencies of which they are aware, and in order to try and mask them, they in turn, you know, start becoming a lot more passive. Our centers aren't that good. Let's maybe not forecheck and as much as we would otherwise, because our centers can't control the middle of the ice, which the Leafs can't. Our defenders, you know, whatever, and it's sort of a trickle-down effect. So I don't think any team sets out necessarily to play that way, but as a byproduct of the roster at hand, I, I think it just becomes natural. I mean, you're trying to, I guess, protect, and whether you are in turn protecting your team by doing that is a whole different story, but it is a bit of a human nature thing, right? We're not that good at this something. Let's just kind of back off it and, you know, hope for the best, try and weather the storm type thing. Um, kind of the equivalent of a bend but don't break defense in, in football. Uh, the power play note, I think, is really interesting uh, from you, Gus, because uh, especially on the five-on-threes, you've, you've noticed, and it's, it's not that they haven't scored on them. It's just it, like there's been no purpose of direction and no, like, or no sense of direction and no real purpose to them. I mean, five-on-threes, you, you start out here working it around, and the whole goal of a five-on-three is you – just bring that triangle right in and collapse it. And at the end of the day, someone's taking a one-timer, you know, from inside the home plate area. That's what you're trying to do. And, uh, you know, they had one five-on-three where uh, Kessel kind of just circled the zone um, like four times. And it, like, I've never seen anyone do a five-on-three like that. Let's just have our best player, you know, skate up, up the top of the circle and hope for the best. Maybe he'll slide a puck through. So, you know, I believe Steve Spot's responsible for the power play. It's early. He's, he's feeling it out. He's never been in the NHL before. Kid gloves are kind of on. But, you know, sooner or later, 
kind of got to sit there and go, well, what's going on here? Because under Scott Gordon last year, you can say whatever you want, but at, they were organized. They, they choked down the stretch. They were really poor down the stretch, but by and large, especially to start the season, they were lights out, and they understood what they were doing, what their roles were, and they really used space well, which they've stopped doing as much. JVR used to be very good at you know ripping pucks around the boards to Franzen, and they just kind of throw pucks to spaces where they knew that their teammates would be in order to properly set it up. So we'll see. It's been an interesting start in terms of their power play and some of their systems and formations. Gus, what what what's your sense of? I mean, Horacek is supposed to be. Uh, am I wrong, Gus, in saying he's supposed to be a, a, a strong defensive coach and, and, you know, just like Anthony talked about Spot being responsible for the power play, for example, Horacek's supposed to be the guy tweaking our defensive structures. Has he had an impact? What have, what have you noticed so far this season, Gus? I know it's early, but, but what have you seen? Well, the thing about, you know, I mean, defensively you can kind of teach a system. You can try to get players to do a certain thing. For me, a defensive system is about three components. Isolating the puck carrier, engaging with numbers, and then somehow creating a turnover. The The essence of a defensive system is to regain the puck. It's not to allow for a shot on goal. It's not to allow for shots on the outside. It's to get the puck back. So when you're assessing what the Leafs have done, are they really doing that? Not really. They used to use this swarm that they talked about last year, which is very, you know, I guess in theory it's an interesting approach to trying to do exactly what I did, isolating, engaging, trying to get the puck back. The problem is it doesn't work, at least especially for the Leafs. The other teams would get it in deep into their own zone, and then they would just forecheck and forecheck and forecheck. And instead of trying to find an outlet and trying to do something where they all come out together, the net effect was they would just try to bang the puck out in the center, and then the other team would get it back, and they'd get back into the zone, and then you'd have the same kind of cycle over and over. Two tweaks that I've seen, maybe Horacek is part of this, maybe it's Randy Carlisle, maybe it's a, an overall coaching element. One, um, forwards aren't going too deep into the own, in their own zone anymore. Um, there's a very responsible winger at the top. There's a sagging defensive structure, meaning... Um, when the puck is on one side, on the strong side, the weak side winger has taken care of the slot. Um, that wasn't available last year. It wasn't as prevalent. Um, the other thing is I, I just don't think that they've done enough to upgrade the personnel to be able to implement something other than what they've been doing now. It's very similar to what they've done last year with a few little tweaks. Is Horacek really the guy that's going to change the entire system and all of a sudden make them into a better team? No. You tweak little by little, and that's uh, doing the things that I said, some like keeping a winger up high, making sure that uh, the sagging forward is actually taking care of the slot, making sure that you're not having these immense time-consuming and physically exhausting puck battles behind your net. Like Those are little elements that you can kind of control, and those are the little things that I think the Leafs have done a little bit better. However, the overall effect just hasn't been any better than what they had last year. Um, Gus, I mean, this, this is a simple question, uh, but but uh, you follow, you know, all of the NHL teams, but, you know, you're here to talk with us tonight about, about the Leafs, but, you know, is it a situation where, where, and I'm talking about from a Leaf sort of fan perspective, you know, not sort of the, the, the X's and O's and the technical side of the game, that, that, you know, we look at a player, and I won't name any particular player, this guy always scored a goal, or he had a good game, or... You know, we look at players in isolation and say, oh, this guy's good, that guy's good, everybody's good. But at the end of the day, the Leafs don't seem to have, um, you, know, you just referred to the personnel. Maybe there isn't the personnel there, and I know this isn't some kind of, you know, epiphany statement, but, but this far into the rebuild that Brian Burke talked about, you know, how many years ago, he had no patience for a five-year rebuild. We're, I don't know how many years we're into it now, but it's many, and is the personnel still simply not there? Uh, you know, that, that our players, we sort of overrate our own is what I'm talking about. Is the personnel simply lacking in Toronto compared to what you see in, in other markets, Gus? You know, who have competitive playoff-ready, playoff-bound teams? 
Well, see, the thing, though, is those teams have had a history to get to that point. Chicago drafted well at the top. Obviously, you get Taves and Kane. And that helps. It does help, but at the same time, they added like solid components by getting Patrick Sharp for nothing. Added Mars, uh, Marion Hosa with a long-term contract, but again, that's a that's an impact player. Um, they had terrible seasons where they pit, where they drafted guys like Keith Seabrook, Keith and Seabrook, etc., etc., etc. And then it's just a matter of complementing those key players with formidable talents to be able to do the things that they possibly can. For us, for instance, like a, a better checking unit or supplemental scoring or or being able to balance out scoring. Uh, the Leafs started off with dregs with absolutely nothing. Nick Andropov was their only asset. What I think happened with the Leafs was they they took a solid leap forward but they didn't develop anything or they were in the middle of developing things and I think that in order for them to become a perennial contender which I figure is something that you were alluding to with these other teams that are, are always there Yes um, is you need to have the structure to be able to bring in your own talent. You have to be able to develop your own talent. Um, the structure was implemented by Burke, and now we're starting to see some of the benefit of that. You had the Cadres and the Morgan Rileys that graduated directly to the NHL. That was great. Tyler Bozak was, you know, for all sakes and purposes, uh, being the whipping boy that he is, he was, like Burke said, a found wallet. So all of a sudden you have another asset. In there. They picked up Joffrey Lupul and James Van Riemsdyk for a song. They picked up Jake Gardner for a song. So they got better quick, but they didn't do anything to help the structure. So the structure that you need in order to become that perennial contender, the wheels are kind of still in motion on that. And because of that, you see this kind of mediocrity. You see this uh, wasting of Phil Kessel's prime years, you know, hoping that, you know, something magical will happen when the reality is they're a playoff bubble team and they have been for the last few years. Yes. And I think once you start to get those little things that start to uh, finally add a positive element to the Leafs. Things like graduating Josh Lebo, graduating Connor Brown, graduating um, William Nylander, and bringing all those elements that will eventually evolve into a type of, you would hope, a perennial contender. This is what you get. You get a solid first step and then a lot of catching up to do, and that catching up means you're going to be losing a lot of hockey games. Anthony? Uh, I'll start by going back a little bit, um, just in terms of Burke and the five-year, no patience and all that. I'll just say, I mean, this is this is not his team. Like, uh, yeah, you look at the, you know, five of the top six, and and those are his guys. But the bottom roster and uh, a lot of the moves Nonis made after they made the playoffs, I, I just don't think. Burke would have done that. I mean, I guess we'll never officially know. I'm just not sold. He would have, for example, given Clarkson that money, or, or I don't think he would have bought out Grabo because that's not really Burke's thing to pay a guy and, and buy him out. And um, So I'll I say, I, I just don't know if I'd put this roster on him. Um, I mean, there are core pieces, yes. I just I think they would have been further ahead if he was, he was not fired. Uh, you know, I'm not as down on the roster as everyone else, and I, I wrote about it this week, and uh, it got a bit of attention and play. When I look at their roster, they have just contracts that are going to hurt them moving forward. Eventually, when they need to add, you know, big pieces, like, for example, you know, Paul Statsny was a free agent last summer, and you never really heard the Leafs were in on him. And it, I doubt he would have came here anyways. I, he's not a, a franchise changer, but boy, he would have been—he would have been their best center since Sundin, and they were just really not in there for him. And you know, it's things like that. So I think eventually you're going to have to to clear contracts. And the problem is with the Leafs when you think about when you think about their roster, it's so it's so locked in, meaning. Uh, let's say they traded Joffrey Lupul uh, for a center, and now what? Now you've got Kadri and then Bozak as your third line center, making over four million dollars. And it, the dynamics of it would be very weird. And you have almost no secondary winger scoring, 
so all like you you know they're kind of where they're at. It's like you you plug in one hole and you open up another. Like you trade Dion Phaneuf for a center, and and then look at their defense. Now what? Like is Gardner gonna go up against top lines every night? Watch him get lit up nightly. Is Riley ready? I would say no. I think eventually he will be, but he's not ready. So, you know, they're kind of at a phase where they've they've really got to know what they're doing. Like they they've got to have a plan, and they've got to like not that anyone ever not needs to know what they're doing, obviously. But um, but more of what I mean is like they're not one or two moves away. They're a string of moves away. So it has to be calculated almost sequentially where, you know, okay, you trade whatever one contract away, but now you probably need to make another move and respond to making the first the move that you just did because they're just not deep enough yet. They're not good enough unless they just want to tank the season and clear money. Um, so that's Which kind sure, of where I think. Okay, that's where you, your sense of where things are. I, I mean, Gus, you said something a, a moment ago about sort of, I don't know if you used the term wasting Phil, Gass, Phil Kessel's best years, but but Gus, Phil, uh, Kessel has been here, what, five years now? Um, and and it does feel like, you know, the Leafs have had this, this you know, pretty elite offensive talent uh, in their midst. And, 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 you know, and he's certainly... Uh, you know, he, he is what he is. He's performed well offensively, Gus. Do you, do you, is there anybody, I guess what I'm getting at is, is there anybody on the roster? I mean, th this again is a simple question, but a, a lot of Leaf fans don't like Bozak in the number one slot. They've been happier seeing Kadri there. Do you think, Gus, that there's anybody on this roster who, who is the best guy to play with Kessel or, or, or what's your, what's your, your sense of that? Uh, you know, I think that the NHL has gone, and this is not a new phenomenon, but they've gone into pairings, um, putting two guys together that they feel is obviously a very good unit, and then adding a third supplemental player. Yes. Uh, to me, that's JVR and Kessel. To them, those are the that's the pairing, regardless of one being uh, both being wingers. So it's just a matter of filling in the hole in the center. And while Bozak is yeah that whipping boy. Um, I mean, it's all based on how JVR and Kessel perform rather than who's playing with them. The elite center that would actually step in between them, what I think that does is it would help either of those players when they're actually slumping. If Phil's not scoring goals, you have an elite center that's setting him up. But Kessel likes carrying the puck. He likes doing a lot of things on his own. He likes to be the man that is actually entering the zone. Um, does it really matter who's that? who the center is, if that's really his style of play. Uh, Van Riemsdyk is the net front presence. That's what he brings. That's what he's good at. Are you sort of saying, though, Gus, yeah, I hear you, but are you sort of saying, though, and this is interesting, because I often wondered in all the years that Lee fans complained about not Sundin being a, a superior talent up the middle but not having wingers to play with, now we've got Kessel, and we say he doesn't have a center to play with. But based on what you're saying, um, these so-called elite centers that we Lee fans would love to have, would they fit with a guy like Kessel, who, as you said, likes to carry the puck, carry the play? Would that even work? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. An, an elite talent will always find a way to to be able to show. Like, I mean, Jason Spezza is a great example of that. An elite talent that just got plugged into Tyler Sagan and Jamie Benn, and they're just causing havoc in Dallas. The rest of that roster is having problems, but... That's a great example of plugging in an elite center and what they can do when they do have elite talent. The other issue here, though, then is uh, the lower roster. What do you do with the lower roster? Um, but kind of going back to that, um, see, both those guys, JVR and Kessel, they're both scorers. And yes. I've always maintained that a goal scorer doesn't need a playmaker to score goals. They know how to do it. It's just instinctive. It's it's the way that they play the game in order to put the puck in the net. Having an elite center there will increase their totals, will make them a more dangerous line, and it will help them when they're actually doing some slumping. Um, but I don't think that there's any specific person, unless the Leafs collectively became a better team, plugging in an elite center on that first unit is just going to make that first unit that much better. You still have holes in the background. You still don't have enough of a supplementary uh, scoring system in order to, to, to help that first line. If the first line gets shut out in a game and there's nobody else scoring, you still have the same problem. So 
there's there's a lot more to just plugging in a center in between uh, JVR and Kessel, and, and Anthony kind of alluded to it too. There's there's certain things that they just have no control over, like like the, down the middle they're not that strong. Uh, their defense is better than it was last year, but it's still not close to the level that you really need to compete. And kind of what I'm figuring is that the Leafs thought that they could probably get a round, a couple of playoff rounds, or at least one playoff round every year while they try to become a, a much better overall team and organization. At this point in time, it's, it's, it's still up in the air whether they could even make the playoffs, let alone being a perennial first-round uh, playoff team. So they're kind of stuck in spinning their wheels at this point. Um, Anthony, just just a quick comment from you on on the uh, Kessel in terms of the center position. I mean, th are, do you have thoughts, Anthony, in terms of who would be the best guy? Is it Kadri in your mind? Is it Bozak because of the chemistry that he's had over the years and the connection with Kessel? Do, do you have a view on that? Well, with what they have, it's Kadri. Uh, the one thing I'll the one thing I'll give Bozak is, I mean, some people think that like anyone could just step in between Phil and produce at the level he's producing. I think anyone could step between Phil and JVR and produce. I, I don't know if they'd be producing the way Bozak has for the last, you know, almost year and a half at this point. But, so the one thing I'll give Bozak is he does, he plays at a, a high pace. Like he doesn't, the thing with Kadri is he plays east-west at times, which kind of doesn't really mesh well with what, what Phil's style is. Phil's, you know, Phil loves zone entries, uh, cross-ice passes, um, you know, cut-ins, quick plays. Um, you know, Naz can be a little more methodical in his movements, trying to open things up. And um, So I think by that token, you know, Bozak does kind of, he can't help Phil out at times. Uh, you know, they'll be on a rush and... Um, you know, it'll be a three-on-two with JVR, and Bozak will drive the net, whereas Kadri would more likely, you know, cut across in the slot for an opportunity, look for the pass type thing. Um, so, I mean, at the end of the day, no question, Kadri is better. He just he's more talented when when those two are passing the puck among each other. It's it's night and day compared to Bozak, who's he's still frankly weak on the puck and his passes leave a little something to be desired. Um, you know, when you go back to the the Boston series, I know I hate talking about their series like it's a big deal. Um, you know, Hamilton played with, with Kadri and, and Phil for a bit, and they actually produced some chances. Uh, you know, Hamilton made the big, you know, drop pass through the legs to Kadri before he sauced it through to Phil in game two uh, for his breakaway goal. And, um, you know, it's not so much that Hamilton's a good player, but I remember looking at Ben and going, like, you could probably play Kadri and Phil together and put, like, some schlum winger on the other side and, and they'll be good. Uh, and Winnick, I mean, like, yeah, he's more of a grinder, but played 500 NHL games. He's a player, so it doesn't surprise me that they're doing well together. I mean, Winnick's a legitimate NHLer, and uh, Kadri and Phil are a lot of talent between them. Uh, but that's not a perfect recipe to building a contender, I don't think. Uh, <laughs> I hear you. On, on the note of, of building a contender, and that's something, Gus, you were alluding to before, too. What, what, what hope is there down on the farm, as they say? Like, like what update, because I know you follow, Gus, the, the, the Marlies very closely. You, you check them out this year quite a lot. Um, uh, you know, names that all Leaf fans talk about, whether it's it's Granberg. I know Carrick has been up, played a couple of games with the Leafs. Uh, you know, maybe fill us in on guys like, like like you know, who who is actually with the Marlies right now that may be more than a replaceable or serviceable player with the Leafs. Are there guys with the Marlies, Gus, that, that fit the, the mold of a, of a difference maker at the next level that you project? Um, if what you're looking at, uh, aside from William Nylander, who's on another level at some other point. Yeah, I, I'm assuming he's going to play in the NHL and be a, be a difference maker. But I'm, I'm talking guys with the Marlies right now, because a lot of people say, oh, there's a lot of talent on the Marlies. And, and you know what, I don't, 
I, I'll trust their view and your view, but what are you seeing? Now, the thing about it's that it's it's the label of difference maker. Uh, there isn't an elite offensive talent on the Marlins. Like we need to get that right off right off the bat. Um, their most offensive player, I should say, their most creative player is probably Sam Carrick. And Sam Carrick projects to be uh, a pretty solid lower roster guy. Um, Josh Lebel to me is probably what the the one player that has that um, better than average offensive ability. Um, I've often referred to him as being Joffrey Lupo's replacement. He can use another. You know, he's been good. Like as far as the Marlies are concerned, he's done whatever he's been told to do. He goes hard to the net. He goes hard to the, uh, those open areas. He finds ways to use his shot. He's becoming a better player year in year. And and from the point where he was drafted to the point where he is now, you can see the progression. His skating has gotten better. It's a lot smoother. It's more explosive. So I would consider Josh Lebel to be a difference maker, just not at that elite level that I feel people expect the term difference maker to be referred to. Um, he'll be a great second line scorer. Um, to me, the best Marley this year has been Connor Brown. Connor Brown has been fantastic. He's been the engine that drives the Marlies forwards. He's never going to get that junior scoring touch, and, and it doesn't translate to the NHL game. But Connor Brown is a player. He could be much better than, let's say, a Daniel Winnick who, with scoring touch. So there are options to bring players up, but it, it, they fall more towards the serviceable rather than elite offensive talents. Um, I haven't seen enough of Matt Finn to really get a good handle of him at the pro level. You see what he's done on the junior on junior side, and 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 he's impressive. I mean, at that point, at the point where where he was coming into the league, you could see that he he had an impressive skill set. But now we need to see how that translates to the pro level, and we I, and I'm still a little skeptical that it, it translates to anything other than a second bearing uh, NHL defenseman. As far as others are concerned, Granberg had a a, a, a pretty spotty training camp. He's been okay, not great on the Marlies. Um, Holzer looks faster, leaner. He's he's seems to be, I'll, I'll use the word better, but again, he, he's a replacement player, sixth or seventh defenseman. Um, Sam Carrick probably has a justified case to be a bona fide NHLer at this point in time. Um, there's other players that I, I just don't feel very happy about. Like Greg McKegg, I don't feel is progressing other than what he's been last year. He had a good little run, but he hasn't gotten any better. Um, and again, Spencer Abbott, I mean, he's a career AHLer. I don't see him being anything further than that. So, and we're not even going to get into the Tyler Biggs and, and the rest of those. So as far as I'm concerned, Josh Label, Connor Brown, uh, Stuart Percy, who's already made an impression. Matt Finn probably has a good indication of being a a future leaf. I'm not going to lose hope on Peter Granberg just yet. I'd like to uh, uh, give him the benefit of the doubt to see what happens after another season. Um, Tom Nilsson has been okay. Victor Love, you know, I think that there's a lot of hype around Victor Love. I'm not as high on him as maybe some others are. Um, he's had some real, you know, explosive things happen in the first part of the season, but, you know, there's skating issues. Uh, he's overly aggressive at times. He, his puck skills aren't elite. Um, so there are deficiencies that he needs to get out of his game. So while you, while we were talking about being difference makers, there aren't very many, and, and that's the bottom line. And I and I appreciate what you're saying, and I and I think what I'm what I was, and you addressed exactly what I was looking for, Gus. And, and it's not a criticism of of the players in the system. Um, I just I think right now the Leafs have a lot of what I would consider uh, on the big on the big roster, um, you know. So you know, good you know, NHL worthy players, serviceable but replaceable, right? Meaning, if if they were gone, somebody else could come in and fill the role, and in a month we wouldn't really notice much of a difference. What you're telling me, or it sounds like, is, and our listening audience is that, that there are maybe you know three guys who who might be uh, who who you know certainly will be NHLers, but the level at which they're going to make a difference, they might be second line players, that sort of thing. That right, and that's that's still hey that that's important. That can be a difference maker, but it's it's uh, we're not talking first line, first defense pairing, uh, that kind of contributor at this point. Is that correct? Well, you got to figure, and this isn't just the lease, but this is primarily around the league. 
If yes. you have a player that's ready to step in and has the potential to be a first-pairing defenseman or a first-line player, they're not playing in the AHL. They're not playing in Europe. They're playing in the NHL. So I feel that a lot of the things that people expect out of their AHL prospects are are, are somewhat misguided. Um, you know, you have talents in the AHL that are, are, are great, but never really are able to translate those skills into NHL careers. And, and I, can, I can name a slew of players that that refers to, Travis Morin in Texas, Chris Mueller, who's bounced around from different team to team. Um, you know, you can go back a little bit further and go to Brett Sterling. And, and, and I, there's just tons of those types of examples. If you're good enough to play in the NHL, you're already in the NHL. You're not stewing in the AHL. The reason why a player is in the AHL is to either get something out of his game or to hone the skills that he's going to need in order to prevail at the next level. Yes. And the the one example is Nazem Kadri. Nazem Kadri probably when he got to the NHL had NHL skills. He had NHL talent, but he needed to hone certain things that he did as a Marley. The patience in front of the net, the patience uh, driving with the puck, getting rid of those crazy dangles in dangerous areas, things like that that he got out of his system. Um, but then as soon as those things were gone, he was right back up there with, uh, uh, with the Leafs. So uh, the AHL is a developmental league. It's, it's either you're really old or you're really young, and you, you probably don't have a lot of difference makers stewing there. Understood. Anthony, from your perspective, you know, building on what, what Gus was reporting in, in his assessments, um, are, are you seeing Marlies who are going to be contributors in the relative short term, other than Carrick who's here, Stuart Percy who's here, are, are there others that have caught your eye so far this season or that you project, Anthony, will, will be contributing Leafs at some point before too, too long? Too, too long being the start of next year. I think you'll have a few other guys begin to start to challenge. Uh, I know they I know they like David Brohl. Uh, probably a fourth liner. You know, not expecting too much offense out of him, not expecting a shutdown winger, but, you know, in terms of a big physical presence, I think they'll give him a look. I, I think they, they're affectionate of him. Uh, his contributions in the A are, are up and down, but... Um, Half the battle when you're in that league is having fans <laughs> in the front office. You know, you, you need someone rooting for you, and I think I think Brol has that. Um, so I think he'll have a, a chance. Uh, I think Victor Love. I know Gus touching on him. Um, I think he'll get a look. I think they're, you know, they wanted to bring him over in North America this this year for a reason. Um, his play. I would never compare this guy to Dion Phaneuf, but in terms of, you know, Dion Phaneuf had that early moniker of, you know, sometimes stepping up too much or, uh, you know, putting himself willfully out of position to, you know, try and do something. I, I, to a much lesser degree than Dion, he has that in his game, but he makes impact plays too. So, you know, once in a while he'll score a big goal or he'll make the big hit. He's, you know, he's a bit of an exciting player and, um, those guys usually turn heads and get attention, so I think he'll he'll eventually make a bit of a name for himself. Uh, Brown, I'm intrigued by. Um, I remember watching him a few years ago on the rookie tourney, and his skating wasn't that good, and he was getting and you know he's getting bullied off the puck, but he's really worked on his game. And you watch him in the A, and he he's strong on the puck, and he's He's a bus driver. That's the best way to put it. Like he gets the puck and he pushes it up play, and he makes plays and he creates scoring opportunities. So I think he'll be in tough to make it next year, but I think he's eventually going to be a guy that gets a look. Um, I remember I was talking to, to Dave Morrison, uh, Leaps head scout, about him, and he, I, I think he put it best. I, I'm not. We'd never say a guy's an NHLer. I would just never bet money against the type of person and the type of work ethic that Connor Brown has. Um, you know, I think they have a few, you know, like longer shot type guys. Um, I'm, I'm a fan of Nielsen. I'm always hesitant with defensemen, though. It's, just, it's so hard to, to crack the NHL at that position. 
um, you know, as we've seen with so many players that Leaf fans have been optimistic about that come in through the Marlies, guys like Corbinian Holzer, I mean, the hype on him was huge. And, uh, you know, even Anton Stroman, who's become very good, but he went through such a long journey to get to where he is. Like, this guy was getting cut in training camps uh, in Jersey. Like, this guy couldn't even last training camp. And now look. So it's, it's such a process with them. But I, I like... I like the tools that Nielsen has. I think he makes a good outlist pass. I think his shot's still underrated, and uh, he hits to hurt, um, which will get him noticed. It's just, it's like Gus said, like you got, you can't just look at the Marlies and say the Leafs, you know, their system is mad. Like Riley's not a prospect, but like he's a young, young player, and he's a heck of a player. And you got Nylander. I wouldn't include Kadri and Gardner in that group anymore because they're older, but. You look at some of those younger players, the Riley, the, the Rileys, the Nylanders, Percy's, and you got a few pieces there, and, and those are going to be impact players. So it's a good, it's not a good start because they've already started, but it's a good addition to what they've started. Gus, uh, what? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Let me just yep. add to that, Michael. Um, the definition that we use at McKean's of a prospect is a player that is under the age of 25 and has not played more than 50 games. So 50 professional games, uh, 50 NHL games, I should say. Yes. So, like, Gardner doesn't fit that bill. Kadri doesn't fit that bill. So anybody that uses that word prospect for Gardner or Kadri, it's automatically wrong, because we're not the only ones that use that type of, of definition of a prospect. Sure. Um, all the other players that Anthony alluded to, they are prospects. Percy got a few games here, a few games there. They are all prospects. So they're not proven players. They're still going through the motions and still learning the game. So, No, absolutely. And I understand that. And thanks thanks for the, the clarification. I think it's a fair point. Gus, what I was going to ask is, is, I mean, one of the big debates in, in Leaf World is is this this concern. And we thought last year when, when Carlisle was, was playing Orr and McLaren, you know, off and on, and our fourth line was sometimes literally getting two or three minutes, or at least two of the guys were getting two or three minutes a night, that when we, we went in a different direction this year in terms of the roster uh, configuration, that, that the fourth line would play, you know, more significant minutes. I don't mean 12 minutes, but, you know, at least, you know, seven to eight to, you know, 10 minutes a night or, or close to that and, and play some useful minutes. At times, we're still seeing guys in the fourth line not getting a lot. Uh, as you scan the rest of the NHL, if you're a Leaf fan, is that a concern to you, or is, or do you not have a concern that Carlisle some nights is still seemingly not trusting uh, his fourth liners? So, yeah, I, or am I wrong in what I'm saying? No, I, I don't think that you're wrong. I, you know, to me, it is a concern. I'll, I'll, just from the fact that not playing those players puts a strain on all the other players that you're playing through those minutes. You know, fourth line should be able to handle the 12 minutes that you alluded to. 12 minutes is not that, I mean, it's a fifth of a game. You know, the, your fourth line should be able to handle those kind of minutes. Or, in lieu of, they should be able to either do something, like in terms of at, at, uh, a pairing for a penalty kill. Yes. Or, or do something other than just playing those 8 to 10 minutes or 8 to 12 minutes. Um, the fact that the Leafs don't use their fourth line is... is it's not a. It's a. It's a bit of an anomaly because you have other fourth lines in the NHL that are. Uh, they're either big bruisers and, and with a little bit of skill that can you know go crash bank, do something, provide a little bit of excitement, give your team a lift, or they're skilled smaller guys that that you know you they might pair against the other team's fourth line that isn't as skilled and maybe create scoring chances. Um, there is something that your fourth line has to be able to provide in order for your coach to justify playing them a lot. You know, I, I just don't think that the Leafs are, are in that bad a shape in terms of who they're putting out on their fourth line. They could put a guy like 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 Holland, and you know, even if they did have Sam Carrick and move Holland to the wing and 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 do something to add an element of skill that would be able to play against other lines in the NHL and do something, either provide a physical element, provide some scoring, chip in every once in a while. Um, eat up valuable minutes that will save the rest of the players that are sitting on the bench. And and I think it is a concern. I, th I think it's something that I, it will never get addressed I mean, while Randy Carlisle is the head coach. 
And for that, I, I just feel it's, it's one of the things that he just doesn't seem to want to do. He wants to lean on those heavy players that he feels will make a direct impact onto the game rather than giving a lower line a bunch of minutes for the sake of keeping his impact players on the bench for a little bit of rest. So... Yeah, maybe it's a trust thing. Um, I don't know. Maybe it, it, maybe I'm wrong on on that as well. I I, I don't know, Gus. But it I just it, it feels sometimes when a coach does that, it feels like they need to have trust in the guys you're going to put out there. And 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 when you don't have that trust, you're you're you know they're seeing three, four, five minutes a night when they really should be playing anywhere from eight, at least eight to ten minutes a night. So I don't know. Maybe I'm misassessing, but maybe it's just stubbornness. Um, and but I think over the course of a long season, you need four lines. I don't know how the heck you can win in the NHL over, the, and it's certainly into the playoffs unless you can roll four lines and feel reasonably comfortable looking down the bench that you trust all the guys on your bench. I don't know. That's how I see it anyway. I think the other thing too is are they are they um, skilled enough to be able to be like is a fourth line skilled enough to take over a third line? If they are, they probably justify a few more minutes. Yeah, no, understood. Um, Anthony, you were going to jump in, but I, you know what, I want to, I want to also throw because we had a, we had a run for time here. We've been going on, and um, I want to wrap things up. And I'll ask you the same question, Anthony. I'll start with you. Um, identity, I, something I've written about it on my site at Vintage Leaf Memories for years now. And I know, you know, it doesn't matter what you know we were saying three, four, five years ago, but the same, the same issue seems to persist. I still don't know if this team has an identity. And I do think there is some value in teams knowing who they are and playing to that identity, whatever it might be. Does this team have an identity in your mind, uh, Anthony, right now? Are they searching for one, or does it matter? I lean towards it doesn't matter, but with a caveat. Like, I agree if you have you know, the Broad Street Bullies or whatever, just a, an extreme example, and they come in every night and they know like we're rough and tumble, it's our game. So we're gonna play. That's how we set the tone. You know, I think that there is that there are advantages to that, but I think kind of in the bigger picture of this team is they're just their construction is flawed and they're not good enough for it to yet matter. Like they're just they're missing pieces. And, and you talk about the fourth line, and like let's look at the fourth line. Like you, okay, Holland's been playing third line center for a little bit the last few games, but you know, generally speaking, he started on the fourth line with guys like. Richard Panic and Matt Fradden and Brandon Cozen and like let's just get this out of the way. Like this is that's not a that's not a checking line. Like that you would never put that line out defensively against a top six forward line unless you lost your mind. So they're a line that you would hope provides a little bit of extra offense. But now let's look at the rest of the Leafs roster. You have the first line. They can't play defense either to save their lives. You've got the second line. They too, like they've you know they had good possession numbers start the year, but they're still not a strong defensive line. Like if you're putting Lupo and Kadri and Winnick up against, you know, Drew and Voracek, you know, Drew and Voracek, I'm going to put my money on them 10 out of 10. So what I'm saying is you have your top two lines are all offense, and now your fourth line is all offense. That's why they don't play. Like they're just redundant. Like there's no point. And if you're Carlisle, you're sitting there, you're coaching for your job, and you're going, all right, it's a, you know, 2-1 game. Am I going to put the line that has a much better chance of scoring than the other and that other line doesn't really provide anything else to the table? Or am I going to put the top line that produces night in, night out? And it's a no-brainer. So I agree about there is an importance to having an identity and knowing how your team is supposed to play and in building some form of consistency. I just I don't think that's their flaw. I think their flaw is just they're, they're not there yet. They're not good enough and especially down the middle so what I would like is that identity that's built down the middle with just good centers and you kind of just build it off there well strength up the middle that's that's baseball and hockey that's that's been talked about for generations if you have strength up the middle you usually have the nucleus or the basis of a reasonably strong team Gus how, how what, what are your thoughts on my identity question um, I don't think that there's a distinct identity although um, if you ask others around the NHL, they probably say, well, their, their identity is a, one of being a rush team, as uh, uh, was it Barry Trotz, the one that, that mentioned that last year from Nashville? Sure. Uh, yes, I think you're right. So, you know, to me, not being a good rush, sorry, being a rush team means that you're not a very good cycling team. 
So the identity of the Toronto Maple Leafs is finesse skill that is a little bit elusive because there really isn't that much after the first two units. Yet, I would say it's more of a lack of forecheck and pressure, lack of cycle. So the identity is more of that high-end skill, which is the elusiveness of, of which is a lie. And so the identity itself, I think, is fake. At this point, I feel it's pretty much irrelevant, simply because of the fact that they just need to, they need to have a, a, a much different philosophical change to to permanently ingrain an identity that um, can be embraced by the players, coaches, and management. So. You know, I'll, I'll say that their identity really is one of being a rush team. But other than that, I don't feel that there's any other label that really fits them. Well, and I'll just conclude by saying, and, I, and I'm sure what you're saying is accurate, and that probably is the perception out there in the hockey world among those, quote-unquote, in the know, Gus. Uh, I'm not sure that's reassuring to Leaf fans because it doesn't feel like an identity. Um, you know, having a, a, a team that, that, you know, has a lot of skill and maybe is a great skating team, but is is hard to play against to me that's kind of an identity I don't think the Leafs are are really hard to play against um, because you got to be a really strong tenacious uh, hard-working you know sound defensively all that stuff team if to be hard to play against I don't think the Leafs are that so you know until they get to closer to that kind of identity I think the, the Leaf fans are probably going to see a lot of this sort of back and forth play um, guys I'm going to wrap it there uh, I appreciate both of you and, and the insights you uh, you both uh, shared with our audience tonight. Anthony, of course, Anthony Petrielli from the Maple Leaf Hot Stove, um, Gus Gutsaros, the Director of Analytics and Pro Scouting for McKean's Hockey. Uh, great stuff. I always enjoyed chatting with you, Gus, you know that, uh, and Anthony. Uh, it's great to have you on board this season on a regular basis, and and uh, we'll we know we'll have a another show soon, Anthony and Gus. I'm sure we'll have you back on as well because you provide insight, and we always get great feedback from from listeners and um, on the Maple Leaf Hot Stove site after you come on. So so thanks very much. We appreciate your time on a, on a busy uh, NHL night. Thanks, guys. I I'm just lucky enough to be able to bask in the beauty of Anthony Petrelli. Isn't that right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Do you want to return that, Anthony, as we as we wrap on that on that? We'll just leave it at that. We'll leave, yeah, yeah, we'll, face we'll, for radio. That's all I'm saying. Face for radio. Yeah. You guys are great. Thanks, Gus. Thanks, Thanks Anthony. Thanks, Gus. And listen, thank you to all of you who've been listening. This has been episode two, season two of the Maple Leaf Hangout. My name is Michael Langlois from Vintage Leaf Memories. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you all next time. Take care, everybody.